All right. So for the last couple months, we have been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes together on Sunday mornings. Now, Ecclesiastes is a deep, profound, and oftentimes incredibly confusing book of the Bible to read. It has probably more diversity of thought and how to understand it than any other book of the Bible. But when we read the words of the teacher, what we find is a faithful Israelite deeply wrestling with the brokenness in our world that he sees. And it's through this that he ultimately teaches us godly wisdom that points us to Jesus Christ, who not only wrestled with the brokenness of our world, but died for it. And in his resurrection, he's now remaking it into something you were made to be a part of. If you have a Bible, go ahead, open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. That's where we're going to be spending our time together this morning. If you don't have one, there are some paperback Bibles on those two back tables. Um, you can find today's passage on page 620 in those. But Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is where we're going to be spending our time this morning. And we're really going to be looking at verses 13 through 29. So follow along with me, starting in verse 13, what the teacher says. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one person wise or wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness, the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I've discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things, while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. Let me ask you this. What is the one thing in your life, the one thing in your life right now that you would change if you had the power to change it? 
Like, just imagine for a second, suddenly, you are the most powerful person in the world, okay? You can make happen anything that you want to happen. What would you change? If you're asking me, I might be tempted to just kind of laugh it off, be a little guarded, say something superficial, like, um, I don't know. You, you know. you know what I would change? I want a dog that doesn't chew up our apartment complex uh, and ruin the carpet and ruin our security deposit. That would be a nice thing. Or, no, I know what I want. I would change my eyebrows. I want eyebrows that don't pack up shop and just quit halfway along, but have some follow through to them. That would be nice. <laughs> but I don't think you jump to the superficial. In fact, I think a lot of us said something that we could think of right away. Maybe something from the past, maybe something right now, maybe something more common, maybe something more tragic. See, the fact is, life, as we all know, it does not always go as we planned it would. And sometimes that can be a great thing, because sometimes we never would have dreamed of marrying the person that we ended up marrying, landing the job that we got in, finding the house that we live in right now. But other times, the fact that life doesn't always follow this neat, predictable, linear line, but it gets twisted and warped in ways that we wish it wouldn't have, isn't a source of joy and excitement, but of pain and confusion and frustration. Because there are plenty of times, too, where we never would have imagined what our careers turned out to be compared to what we thought would have been 10 years ago. We never would have imagined how the financial stress that we've been living in for the past couple of years. We never would have imagined being single still when we wanted to get married. We never would have imagined battling depression and loneliness in life, not being able to have kids still. In our lives that don't always follow this straight, neat, predictable, understandable, linear path, but often twist and turn in ways that we wouldn't have expected, what would you want to change? You see, it's the twistedness of our world that the teacher is asking us in this passage to just spend some time sitting and observing with him. The teacher has watched as things in life that should have been predictable, should have been easy, should have been understandable, have instead been twisted and warped into something that's confusing and frustrating. Things that he says should have been straight have now become crooked. And it's his honest reflection of what this reveals deep inside of him that I think we'll see in the end is something we can all say along with him. But to get us there, there's three questions that I think he helps us to ask in this passage. How could you, how could they, and how could I? First, the teacher invites us to ask with him, how could you? And he starts off with just kind of a general question. He says, consider what God has done. Think about, really, really ponder for a second the way God works in this world. The things God's done that he's referring to uh, is the um, ways that God has warped life, the things that we wouldn't have expected. It's the misfortunes that he talks about in verse 14 and the injustices that he talks about in verse 15, things that should have gone one way, 
but have instead gone another. Things that should have been good, but have instead turned out to be tragic. The teacher says, all of this has happened under God's watch. All of this, in other words, was a part of God's agenda for our lives. And so in light of that, he says, who can straighten what he's made crooked? Is a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one can reverse God's strange, unpredictable, sometimes tragic ways that he works, the things that happen under his watch. And it's out of this question that he gives us a command. He says in verse 14, well then, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. What he's saying is, when things are good and straight and predictable, enjoy it. But when God warps life, when things start to get confusing and frustrated and crooked, remember, God's working in the good and the bad, the straight and the crooked. But he says that God's doing all of this so that we can't always figure out what's next. And that is incredibly frustrating, isn't it? He says that God's doing all this so that we can't always predict and plan and control what will happen in our lives. And that sounds a little fatalistic, doesn't it? But he says, no, all of this, the good and the bad, are under God's good and loving care for us. And so in good times, when things are going well, when things are predictable and understandable, he says, enjoy it. Don't base your confidence off of it, but enjoy it. But when things are bad, when things get twisted and warped and crooked and confusing and frustrating, pay attention. Don't look away. Don't ignore it. Pay attention and allow the unsettling that that stirs up in you to lead you to deeper trust in the God who he says is ordering all of this under his loving care for you. It's a wise command, but it's one that I always don't want to hear. If you're like me, then a lot of times when things go sideways in life, you don't sit back and reflect, I wonder what God could be teaching right now, mean right now. No, my response more often than not when these things happen is to go, God, how could you? How, how could you let this happen? How could you let my career turn out to be what it's turned into? How could you let my child be this frustrating and challenging? How could you let another home repair happen that we clearly don't have the money for? How could you let this diagnosis happen? I mean, if you haven't asked that, at some point you will. And it's an unsettling question, isn't it? It's unsettling in that moment to to open yourself up to doubt and question God's care for you. To say in that moment, God, I'm not 100% sure that you really have my best interest in mind right now. And in one sense, it's an ancient question. When we ask this question, you are joining a long line of godly people who've wrestled with the same thing in their life. 
All right, in Job chapter 27, he uses the same Hebrew word that's used here in verse 13 to describe the crooked things in life, to not necessarily question what God's doing, but to just outright accuse God for twisting and warping his life in ways that are miserable. It's an ancient question, but it's one that has a modern voice to it. In 1755, a massive 9.0 earthquake hit the city of Lisbon, Portugal. Now, Lisbon at the time was probably the most important city in Portugal, and the, the earthquake was devastating. Tens of thousands of people died in it. It was a completely tragic day. And out of it, in the wake of it, people mourned and grieved deeply what had happened there, like anybody would and any time during a situation like that, but something new happened too. People, for the first time ever, in light of a tragic event like this, started to doubt God. Leading thinkers of the time, people like the French philosopher Voltaire, uh, led the charge in this. He wrote this 180-line poem that is a scathing rebuke of what happened to God in that day in Lisbon, Portugal. And now to understand why people started to doubt in light of this tragedy, you got to understand this relatively new line of thought that was just starting to kind of pick up steam during this time. And essentially said this, God is this relatively detached person who's created the world for our joy and benefit. I mean, you can hear kind of echoes of this get kind of written into the DNA of our country when really just a couple decades later, we said that God is deeply committed to the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of every single person. Now, it's not to say that God wants us to be miserable, that he doesn't want to be happy, but what these people are doing was taking it a step further. They were saying that we weren't created here on this world to serve God out of fear and faith, but it was the other way around. God was really here to serve me for my joy, my benefit in life. And it's continued up until today. There's a popular version of it right now that essentially says, you're the hero of your own story. And God is just as committed to your vision and pursuit of the good life as you are. And now, I mean, it's an alluring idea, isn't it? Plenty of days that I wake up and I really wish that was true. The problem is, though, it can't sustain when things go crooked. When things in life go sideways, it has zero answer for it. And instead, what ends up happening is we look to God and we say, how could you? But next, the teacher shifts our focus here. He shifts it from upward to outward, from asking how could you to how could they? And he starts with this confusing observation that he makes in verse 15. He says, in this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Now, what he's describing here, this would have been the complete opposite from what Hebrew wisdom at this time would have expected to be happening in the world. All right, when you read the book of Proverbs, the general pattern in it, not only this neat and clean and simple, but the general pattern is this. If you live a righteous and good life, you will reap the rewards of that. If you live a sinful life, you will reap the consequences of that. But what the teacher's saying is, no, I am seeing the complete opposite of that. 
I'm seeing the unjust, wicked, evil people living long, fat, and happy, while the good and the just people are dying far too young. How can they? How could that happen? You see, when we experience the crookedness in our lives that we all know we have, it will bring us to a place where, like the teacher, we ask, how could they? How could they get away with that? It's just not fair. How come I work 10 times harder than them, and they're kind of lazy at work, but they got the raise and the promotion, and I didn't? How come I am nice and respectable and eligible? And let's face it, they're kind of a jerk, and they're the ones who are married, and I'm single, and I don't want to be anymore. How come I was abused, and I carry the emotional weight of that to this day, but the person who did it, they seem to be doing just fine right now in life. How could they? It's just not fair. You see, if you've never asked that question, then you will at some point. Because I've asked this question countless times in my life. How could they get away with that? How could they? It's just not fair. And it's out of this confusing observation that he gives us a warning about what he says will only add to this confusion. In verse 16, he says, Don't be overly righteous, neither be overly wise. Why destroy yourself? Don't be overly wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? And now there's a couple different ways people understand these verses. Some people think he's just talking about moderation. Teacher's basically saying, hey, look, we can't understand things in life, right? They get kind of confusing and weird, so here's the thing. Don't be, like, overly sinful and bad. Obviously, that's not right. But also, don't waste your time and energy trying to be overly good either. That's not going to get you anywhere. Other people think he's just being cynical and cold and calloused. But if we read the next verse, we see the wisdom, really, in what he's saying. In verse 18, he said, It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid both extremes. Now, the Hebrew of this verse is really, honestly, it's very difficult to translate. Um, Eric Ortland, who's an American uh, Old Testament scholar, teaches at a school out in London, says there's a, probably a better way that we can translate and understand this verse here that basically says the teacher isn't telling us to join in the wickedness and this kind of hyper-righteousness that he's talking here, but actually the teacher's telling us to avoid them. That as he translates this verse, the one fearing God will escape both of these extremes. Meaning what's happening here is really the teacher is giving us a warning against two different pitfalls that don't fear God and only add to our confusion of the warped and twisted and crooked life that we can find ourselves in a lot of times. The first pitfall, when he talks about the over-righteousness, is this self-righteous attitude. This is one where our seemingly very outwardly religious life isn't one that's done in fear and humility before God, but it's ultimately done to control things in our lives so that we make sure nothing gets crooked that we want to keep straight. 
C.S. Lewis kind of describes the mindset this way. He says it's people who theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks of them far better than ordinary people. And the teacher is warning us against this self-righteousness, this hyper-righteousness, because telling us what happens is when we do this, we begin to think we're immune to anything in our life getting twisted and warped and crooked. When those things happen, we think, whoa, no, 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 no. Wait, God, that's for the ordinary people. That's not for me. Don't you know I am so much better than that? No, 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 no. I don't deserve this right now. This makes zero sense. I've done all the right things. Why is this not working as I planned it would have? The second pitfall he warns us against, though, is kind of swinging the pendulum the other way to this unrighteous life. One where we say, okay, you know what, God? You don't own me anymore. I will write the the rules to my own life. I will decide what's best for how I should and shouldn't live. You don't get to decide that for me anymore. And maybe you're contemplating this right now. And if so, it, it can sound incredibly freeing in the moment to be like, the, ch- the chains are gone. I've been set free. I don't have God in my life anymore. But here's the thing. When, when we remove God from our life equation, we now get put in that place. We are the ones who are now left to try and make straight anything that's become crooked. And do you think you'll have the ability to do it? You see, Christian or not, we can all fall into one of these two extremes at multiple points in our lives. And they only add to the confusion of the warped and twisted and crooked things that we see in life that only make us go even more, how could they? So the teacher's pointed us upward to ask, how could you? And he's pointed us outward to ask, how could they? But now, he directs us inward. And he invites us to ask, how could I? In other words, after looking at God and after looking at other people, we now look at ourselves, where he begins to show us where the true heart of the problem lies. And he starts by making this universal confession. Look with me all the way down in verse 20. He says, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. This is the climax right here of everything he's been talking about so far. And listen to the way he describes our problem. He says it's universal. There's no one on earth who's righteous. And then he says it covers sins of omission, no one who does what is right, and commission, No one who never sins. But he doesn't just make this universal confession here. He takes it one step further. He then makes a personal confession. In verse 27, it says, Look, says the teacher, this is what I've discovered. Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we hear from two different voices. The teacher, who we hear pretty much throughout the entire book. But then there's the narrator, who we get for a couple verses in the beginning, a couple verses at the end, and right here, where he interrupts what the teacher's saying 
to slow us down for a second so we don't miss the epiphany that is dawning on the teacher in this moment. And what's the epiphany? He says, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching, but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Now, it sounds like he's being a little sexist here, right? It's not what he's saying, okay? I mean, if, if, if we wanted to take it very literally, what he's saying is, okay, I found that one-tenth of one percent of men are more wise than women. But that, that's not what he's talking about, right? The emphasis isn't on what he's found, but on what he's not found. What he says that is in both men and women, meaning everyone, wisdom, righteousness is tragically rare, And then he says in verse 29, this only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. In other words, what he's saying is what's really crooked in this world is you and me. Back in the early 1930s, allegedly, uh, a British newspaper asked a bunch of intellectuals and thinkers what they thought was wrong in the world. One of the people they asked was a man named G.K. Chesterton, who's a, he was a Christian author at the time. And so when the responses started coming in, people started saying, well, here's what's wrong with the world. It's these corrupt social systems. It's these messed up political orders, all bad things. Chesterton said something, though, that was far more timeless and far more on point. He said this, dear sirs, I am. What Chesterton says is what the teacher is inviting us to confess right now. We're what's really crooked in the world. And now maybe you're sitting here thinking, okay, this seems a little harsh, a little unfair, and I don't know if I completely buy it, all right? I don't believe that all the things the Bible says, all these commands and laws and stuff, I don't believe in any of that. Or, or maybe you do, but you think it's a little idealistic here, a little harsh to judge me by it. I think I'm a pretty good person. I don't see how I'm any sort of problem in the world right now. Um, I heard an, another pastor kind of describe it this way. He said, okay, well, imagine for a second then that there's this voice recorder that's kind of strapped around your neck, and it follows you your entire life, and it registers any sort of judgmental thought or word, or any sort of expectation that you kind of unduly put on someone else. And then at the end of your life, you've died, you're standing before God, and you kind of plead your case, and God says, okay, fair enough. I won't judge you by my law. I'll judge you by yours. And then he reads out every judgmental thought and expectation that you've placed on someone else. See, the reality is, even if you don't want to accept everything the Bible's saying right now, none of us can live up to even our own standards of how we think the world should work. Dear sirs, I am. I'm the problem. You see, Christian or not, the teacher is leading you to confess we're what's really crooked with the world. Do you remember where we started? In verse 13, we started by saying that there are certain things that should be straight that God's made crooked, but now here at the end of the passage, look what he says. God made mankind upright, but we've become crooked. 
and has his image bearers as his representatives here in this world to rule over it and to protect it and to lead it in worshiping God, that means now the world's become crooked too. And now I'm not saying that when something goes sideways in your life, it is always because of some response to some specific sin you've committed in your life. Sometimes it might be. Plenty of other times, though, it is because we are the victim of somebody else's heinous, awful sin towards us. Or probably even more frustrating, we're the victims of just the general, unexplainable brokenness of the world we live in. The teacher's not trying to nuance all that right here. What he's leading us to see ultimately is this, that we can't blame the twisted things in life to some, what we think being this wicked God who's out there to just make us suffer and miserable as possible. No, what he's saying is though he created us upright, we've gone our own ways. Though he created us wise, we've become foolish. In other words, the question we ultimately need to ask isn't how could you, but how could I? And now, it's a scary thing to ask, isn't it? It's a tough confession to make. But if you're a Christian, being able to make this confession, not from a place of shame, but from a place of honestly seeing and admitting your need of Jesus Christ, that actually becomes one of your assurances that you are indeed in God's love. You see, if we follow the teacher's wisdom here, if we hear the command and we embrace the confusion and then we make the confession, then we can receive the compassion. In verse 18, the teacher shows us how you and I can embrace this godly wisdom that he's talking about here that allows us in good times and bad to embrace God's loving care over it. After describing those two different pitfalls, the self-righteousness and the unrighteousness, he tells us that there is a righteousness, though, that truly fears God, that will avoid both of these extremes and instead will be able to wrestle, yes, but ultimately eventually get to a place where we can humbly trust all the things in our life to God's care. See, what he's describing here is ultimately a life that doesn't demand anything from God, one that doesn't have any ulterior motives to obeying him, one that fears God, even when there's seemingly no earthly benefit to it whatsoever. He says if we can approach God with this posture, that we will find a wisdom that's actually more durable than our self-righteousness and our unrighteousness that will allow us to wrestle but ultimately humbly trust all things in life to God's care. Henri Blucher, who's a French biblical scholar, has written a lot about biblical wisdom, describes how in the Old Testament, the concept of the fear of the Lord, that the teacher's talking about here, says is the key to this wisdom. The concept of the fear of the Lord is virtually synonymous with the idea of faith in Christ in the New Testament. Meaning that the fear of the Lord that the teacher's talking about here is the same thing as the faith that the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans 3. When he says, where then is boasting? It's excluded because of what law? 
The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. In other words, what Blue Share is saying is fear the Lord and faith in Christ both demand nothing, both exclude any type of self-righteousness, both are stripped of expecting anything in return from God. Now, okay, how can we honestly, how can anyone stand before the God of the universe this way? Well, the only way we can is when we see that Jesus stood before God that way before us. On the cross, Jesus is emptied. Jesus is poor. Jesus is stripped naked. Jesus endures the greatest, most undeserved twist of his life. One that he wrestled with deeply in the Garden of Gethsemane, but ultimately endured on the cross, even though it wasn't his to endure, but ours. When he was put to death on the cross, Jesus took on the ultimate twist of humanity, the punishment that our sins deserved. And then in love, he resurrected, and he is now promised to return where he will then make everything wrong, right, everything disordered, perfectly ordered, everything crooked, straight, forever. You see, there's a fourth question we need to ask here. Not how could you, not how could they, not even how could I, how could he? How could Jesus do all of that for me? but I didn't do a thing to deserve it. And when we ask that question, when in the midst of the crooked things in life, we step back and we go, how could he? It's then that we will ultimately find the true wisdom the teacher is pointing us to here that will help us to, yes, wrestle, but eventually come to a place where we can humbly trust the good and the bad the straight and the warped things in life to a God who loves you so much, he took the blame for what I made crooked. Church, let's spend just a couple moments in silent reflection thinking about this word. First, let me pray for us. Father, I confess that in light of the twisted and warped and crooked things in my life, I'm really what's crooked in this world. God, if you were to ask me what's wrong in this world right now, I should look at myself in the mirror and say, it's me. Jesus, thank you so much that on the cross, you gladly took the blame for what I've made crooked. That even though you weren't to blame at all in any of this, you came down, not so that you could be left off the hook, but that so you could get on the hook. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would press this word deep into our hearts now through this time of prayer and ultimately through the meal of Holy Communion. Amen.